right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to WHRA. What the heck is resilience anyway? My name is Connor Barnes. And I'm Julie Fowler. And this is our first introductory episode. We're super excited to yes, we are. reach out and talk to everybody about resilience. Yeah, and you don't have to come with any prior knowledge, none assumed. We're just a couple of grad students trying to teach the world about ecological resilience a little bit. Hanging out. Yeah, in our chatting. Fantastic collaboration room here. Yeah. So I'm a grad student. I'm a master's student here at University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where we're both currently located. Uh, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, studying environmental science. Now I study sort of soil legacy effects of invasive species here in the Great Plains. Um, yeah, and now I make a podcast. What about <laughs> you, Connor? Well, I'm Connor Barnes. I'm originally from Omaha, Nebraska. I've been here in Lincoln for oof, eight eight or so years now. Uh, my background though, uh, I'm currently a PhD student here at the university. Uh, before that I was in law school, mm -hmm. so I graduated from law school a couple years ago. I, in that time, clerked for a couple of different agencies, yeah. a couple different groups. Um, I clerked for the EPA, worked for the uh, Attorney General's Office here at Nebraska, doing some law clerk work. Uh, worked for Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies for a while. So a lot of uh, environmental law, mm -hmm. natural resources law, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And before this grad school adventure, I was a field tech for a bunch of pollination studies in the American West and Southwest. And, you know, now I'm on the soil. So we'll see what's next for me after this. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, Julie... Just to get us rolling, Yep. Uh, why did we start this podcast? We started this podcast because we're a couple of grad students in a program that teaches about ecological resilience, but before this program, we had really never heard of it, and a lot of the information about ecological resilience is all tied up in journal articles and fancy scholarly conversation and all that sort of thing, and we, after learning some you know, from our professors and these experts, thought ecological resilience is pretty cool and pretty yeah. useful and is a good framework for people thinking about global change and local change and systems and sustainability and stuff like that, but that none of the materials were accessible. So, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, here we are. It's pretty abstract stuff right now. It's pretty abstract stuff. And so we started a science communication group here at UNL called the Council for Resilience Education. We started writing some encyclopedia-style articles that are online. We can link them in the bio for this if y'all are curious. Uh, but then we decided a podcast might be another cool way for us to get the word out on what ecological resilience is. So, and like I said, why it matters to you. Yes, and how <laughs> you can use it, and just how simple it is. Awesome. So, just to create a bit of a roadmap for everybody where we're going this episode, we're just going to provide a introduction to what resilience is, what we mean when we say that word. Uh, we'll talk about where the concept came from, we'll talk about where the concept is now, and then we will close this episode as well as future episodes by looking at some resilience as it's used in the news. Yeah, and that might be an article that explicitly mentions resilience and we're like, oh look, great, here it is getting out in the public. Or it might be an article where we very clearly see some resilience, but is not used by name, just to demonstrate how ubiquitous this idea is. Absolutely. And we're also, you guys have this look forward to, going to have some interviews from scientists uh, 
land managers, that sort of thing in the resilience field. So got a couple of really great ones coming up already (laughs) recorded. So going to be exciting. Awesome. All right. Well, let's start by just introducing the concept. So like the title says, Mm -hmm. just what the heck do we mean by resilience Mm -hmm. anyway? Uh, We see that word used in a lot of different contexts nowadays, right? I can think of several here on campus. We see it in Big Red Resilience, Mm -hmm. which is a health and wellness group here on campus. Oh, I see. We also see it in uh, athletic resilience. A lot of um, the stuff I see in sports columns, for example, nowadays we'll talk about like, that's one resilient football team, Bob, or... Mm -hmm. um, talking about the resilience of a tennis player or something sure. like that. Returning from an injury, maybe, or from some yeah. sort of hardship in a game. Either a physical hardship or yeah. maybe a mental, mental one. hardship. Yeah. Something to that effect that's often used there. Uh, it's also being used a lot to describe a community's ability to be resilient in the face of natural disasters. Gotcha. We see it in hurricanes, big storms, tornadoes, that sort of thing. That's a really resilient community. It's able to come back after this big disaster. Yeah, we've even seen a few things. Uh, Connor and I have been checking out this. There's been a resilience IPA that Sierra Nevada put out a little (laughs) while ago to raise money for the recovery efforts from the campfire in California. So they're saying this is a very resilient community. They're going to bounce back and, you know, we should raise money for that and name their beer uh, (laughs) with that idea in mind. Which, if I remember right, they donated like all of the all proceeds, hundred percent. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. That is very cool. So when we talk about all of these different examples that we've listed, whether it's athletic resilience or mental health resilience or community resilience, often we're talking about what in ecology we call engineering resilience, mm-hmm. and this isn't obviously confined to engineering per se, although the term kind of originates more in that area, but um, it's widely applied and what it really means is how long it takes to bounce back from some kind of disturbance. Gotcha. So going back to that community example, Mm -hmm. Julie, we see a community of some kind, maybe a town gets hit by a storm, a lot of buildings are destroyed, you know, people are probably injured, a lot of property damage, and the resilience of that community is kind of judged on, you know, its ability to recover from the storm. So how long does it take for, say, all of Main Street in a small town was destroyed by a tornado or something? How long does it take to rebuild those structures and sort of get back to the day-to-day normal? Right. Okay. So we have that normal, that baseline, mm-hmm. some disturbance comes, whether it's a fire or a hurricane or what have you. That normal is disrupted. We see a lot of damage, and then we try. We see everybody try to come back to that normal. Okay. So that is what engineering resilience is. So it could also be something small, exhausted muscles or a stress ball. Mm-hmm. So think of a stress ball, something you squeeze. That ball is going to bounce back to its original shape. Yeah, it can't really move beyond the confines of that baseline size. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, but despite the name. Uh, resilience isn't, you know, confined to engineering resilience. Uh, There's also what we call in the ecology field, ecological resilience. So that looks at the concept of resilience really differently. Ecological resilience is more defined as the amount of disturbance or external pressure that some kind of system can absorb 
before it shifts to an alternative state. Mm-hmm. So in engineering resilience, we always imagine a system going back to normal. To so that, that baseline we discussed. That baseline. That community goes back to its baseline after its recovery. That stress ball goes back to its ball shape after we've squeezed it. Ecological resilience contemplates that a system may or may not go back to what it was being before yeah. that disturbance. Might also be able to be described as having multiple baselines. Yeah. It doesn't have to be necessarily returned to the one that it was just in. Absolutely. So, for example, that community might have to move if the disturbance is so great that the land surrounding it is flooded into a swamp, for sure. example. Um, that stress ball, if we apply a different kind of pressure, perhaps, instead of squeezing it with my hand, I take a hammer to the stress ball. <laughs> it's going to fundamentally change its shape, right? Might be a pancake instead or something like that. Might be a pancake. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for an ecology example, we can see this in terms of uh, forests and grasslands. So engineering resilience would see a forest after a forest fire recover back into a forest. It should. So someone who had a engineering resilience mindset would look at a burned forest and go, oh, we got to help this get back to a forest maybe, or I hope it goes back to the forest it was. Or we'll assume that yeah. it will go back yes, to the forest right. it was. Yes. Ecological resilience, on the other hand, doesn't make that assumption. So the forest could go back to a forest, mm-hmm. but it could also become a desert or a grassland yeah. uh, and, and uh, some other kind of biome, right? Depending right. on the different complex disturbances and systems that mm-hmm. are involved. Yeah, and one's not inherently better than the other. I think that you and I discussed this a little bit. There used to be this idea of succession in ecology mm-hmm. where a grassland was like a, like a baby ecosystem almost. And then over time, you know, you shouldn't burn it. You shouldn't do anything like that. And then sh- small shrubs would, in- would invade and then larger ones would, and then it would become a forest when trees came there. And that was sort of what was called the climax state. So, you know, grassland was a baby ecosystem, not maybe a desired state, and the forest was the end over time that it was supposed to go towards the climax state. So ecological resilience doesn't have this linear movement. Linear progression, yeah. Yeah. No good and bad, per se. Well, I guess there's good and bad, but not in terms of labeling one ecosystem versus another. Well, yeah, I'd agree with that, at least to some extent. That entire idea of succession goes back to Clements Mm -hmm. around the turn of the 20th century. So there's a lot of history there. Uh, We've seen that in our systems today is so complex and so redefined by people living in the landscape that that's not really the case and really it never was Um, those systems have always had disturbances and Mm -hmm. systems have always changed Mm -hmm. Um, you know 10,000 years ago Nebraska looked quite different right it was arboreal forest Um, a lot of conifers and and all that jazz and you know once the glaciers retreated after the last ice age only then did we start to see grasslands start to develop as as the people along the Great Plains yeah. uh, started fires and these grasslands arose as a result of these different yeah. complex elements. Yeah, that really goes to how to the point of how important scale is in talking about resilience. Absolutely. If you look at the scale of just the last 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 
you're going to have one view of an ecosystem, maybe as a pretty static, you know, maybe you'll think it's always been this grassland or this forest. Right. But if you start talking about 10,000 years, like you're talking about, we don't have any idea what the system, quote unquote, should be. Absolutely. Yeah. Or go back, you know, 85 million years yeah, and right. this is all in an underwater yeah. sea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, with that, mm -hmm. I think we're going to move on, Julie. You have prepped for us a classic paper that I talks have. about resilience way back in the foundation of ecological resilience. Basically the foundation of ecological resilience. So the paper that I've got here is a bit of a dense read. So it's called The Resilience and Stability of Ecological Systems. It's by C.S. Holling. Holling is sort of the big name in resilience. This paper really got the field started. You know, there was a lot of work before this. Holling had been thinking about this for a time. He's not the first person to ever have any idea like this, but this is the paper that people cite as sort of the start of the field. And I will say it's from 1973, sort of that early ecology writing. It is dense and I've probably <laughs> read it 10 times now. And only this morning did I feel like, okay, I can, I can talk about, I can talk about this a little bit and distill the meaning that I want to have from it. So, so would you say it's very abstract? It's very it's... abstract. And if you are brand new to the field, don't bother reading this paper yet. <laughs> if you're a veteran, you know, and you're, you want to know the history, absolutely dive in, read it five times. You get a lot from it, but don't start here. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to because you have us as your as your roadmap. Yeah. Our so post leading the way. Yes, trying our best. <laughs> so this paper starts with individuals die, populations disappear and species become extinct. That's sentence one, very dramatic. Wow. That is one view of the world, but another view of the world concentrates not so much on presence or absence, but a, or as upon the numbers of organisms and the degree of constancy of their numbers. So this whole mm. paper very beautiful language. It's a fun read. But so what he's saying here is that numbers and the counting of species in one particular spot year after year isn't that helpful to understand how a system or an ecosystem works. You know, if you take that view, you might say, man, there were 20 bunnies here this year. Maybe there's always supposed to be 20 bunnies. And then if the next year there's only 10, you're going to be like, there's something wrong. We've, we've messed up. Sure. Maybe we should start shooting all the foxes that are eating the bunnies. Like, we got to keep this state in the state that we've always known it to be for the past five years we've been recording data, something like that. Um, and so what Holling says is that these raw numbers do not matter nearly as much as the persistence of relations. That's what he calls. Basically, what he's saying is there's a relationship, a cyclical relationship between the number of bunnies and the number of foxes. But what matters much more is not that the number of bunnies and the number of foxes stays exactly the same as it is this year, but that the relationship and the cyclical nature of the relationship between the bunnies and the foxes stays the same. So one year you're going to have a ton of bunnies and the next year, maybe you won't. Hmm. That's because if you had just an abundance of bunnies one year, the foxes are going to be fat and happy. They're going to kill off all right. of them. They're going to be doing great and the foxes are going to have lots of babies. And so then there's so many foxes that bunny population can't, you know, for a while you have a ton of foxes and no bunnies, but then that huge fox population that now exists can't be supported by the small bunny population that exists. So a bunch of the foxes die of starvation. Mm. And then the bunny numbers grow because all of a sudden there's not very many predators. So you got a huge, again, a huge population of bunnies and just a few foxes. Picture that year after year or, t or you know, maybe that happens every decade, decade after decade, something sure. like that. 
So that sort of consistent cycle matters much more than consistent numbers. Right. That is the overall view of this paper. Um, and he really drives home that this sort of qualitative large scale view is a lot more important to him than a quantitative view. Hmm. What's interesting about that is the paper that Connor is going to cover argues a little bit differently. And that's how we're going to track sort of the progression of resilience over time. Another really interesting point here that he makes is that if you tried to keep, well, we're going to switch from bunnies and foxes to fish. If you try to keep the fish population the exact same year after year after year, you might actually paradoxically, as he, what he says, paradoxically increase the chance for extinctions. So instead of letting the fish and its predators and, you know, whatever it eats go through that natural cycle where there's boom and bust and this sort of thing, if you try to keep at the exact same level and then your, especially if your fishing pressure increases year after year and you believe that those fish are always going to be in the same static numbers, even though you might be poaching a large number of them and taking away the fish of reproductive age, right. you might drive it into extinction. So you hmm. really have to keep in mind that cyclical prog progress and not try to manipulate the system too much. So it's very much about not just the actual numbers, but how the people involved in the system yeah. think about Absolutely. that system. Absolutely. And maybe replace foxes with people in my example, or, you know, something like that, where we're trying to support our own numbers, but sometimes without consideration of how that influences the ability of whatever we're drawing from, hmm. be that fish population, be that, you know, trees for paper production, sure. whatever, that its own cyclical pattern. Very interesting. I can't help but think about this from a legal perspective. Oh, interesting. Thinking about something like the Endangered Species Act, right. which prioritizes the preservation of species right. above everything else, of course. Mm -hmm. So you know, when you see numbers of a population drop, yeah. you know, there's a lot of concern because of you know, you'd, hopefully you won't have to add that to a threatened or an endangered species list. Right. And you know, we don't really contemplate the idea that this you know, might, uh, might be a, a factor in one particular area, but not Absolutely. others. Absolutely. Of course, they go into a lot of, uh, there's a lot of work involved in measuring all that to make sure that a species is actually endangered. But Absolutely. That, that act was originally written and contemplated about from the perspective of, you know, a, a quantifiable approach. Yeah, know? it makes sense. And it, we probably also don't think about how whatever species you're trying to save will then have impacts on other species that are within its, you know, food web sort of thing. So if you bring sure. back the numbers to a much larger population of something that was dying out, that is going to then have a ripple effect on every other species that comes into contact with it, be that plant, animal, anything like that. Sure. Yeah. So another thing that Holland goes into in this paper is uh, not just the sort of predator-prey, you know, look at resilience, but also a lot of what we're talking about with disturbance and alternative stable states in terms of lakes. So yeah. he starts talking about how this is something probably a lot of us have heard about, lake eutrophication, where you've got sure. a lot of nutrient runoff from a farm, from something like that, you know, sort of phosphorus and nitrogen inputs, and it leads to algal blooms in the lake and, you know, less oxygen and less ability for other species, fish, fish species perhaps, to live in that lake. And then it can be very difficult to get that lake back to its oh, previous state. For sure. So, yeah. So what he talks about is, you know, there's this runoff. You get algal blooms, low oxygen con conditions, and sun disappearance of some plankton species 
but then appearance of others. So you had one state where the lake was clear, right. ups, you know, perhaps mm-hmm. what we want. Later on, it moves into this other state. And then how do you get it back? Well, that's very interesting. Uh, but the opposite can be true as well. Right? Absolutely. Where, you know, for example, with zebra mussel infestation, mm-hmm. a lot of those lakes actually get clearer water. Yeah. But as a result, a lot of the plants and animals that live within that lake sure. are dramatically affected because um, they rely on the water's cloudiness yeah. in order uh, and the nutrients yeah. in there to um, survive. Right, so. absolutely. Yeah, and in the context of resilience of this example, when you're talking about um, these lakes sort of shifting regimes, so in the zebra mussel example, what might be happening is it might be fine to have some zebra mussels for a while, the lake might keep functioning with those same persist, you know, relationships right. that Holling described. But then if at some point the zebra mussels start outcompeting all the other species in the lake, and then you lose those species, perhaps driven to a local extinction in that lake, no more mm-hmm. particular species in that lake, how would they ever recover? That lake has been pushed, has been disturbed to a point where it tips over what we call a ball and cup sort of model. Mm. Picture that you have a picture you have a cup and there's a ball in it. The ball is the state of the ecosystem as it is currently. The cup sure. is sort of the range of conditions that that ecosystem can move into and still maintain the same relationships, the same function, the same, you know, whatever we want that lake to do. Disturbance moves that ball up the side of the cup a little bit or a lot. And if it moves it up too far, it's going to push it over the edge and into the cup that's sitting right next to that cup. Mm. So now, you know, it's been fundamentally shifted. The ball's in the bottom of this new cup, and it might be difficult to disturb it all the way back into the first cup. And so that's sort of what we see with this algal example where you had a clear lake, 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 and all of a sudden there was just enough input, just enough nitrogen, just enough phosphorus, you know, too much of this other kind of plankton where that ball got pushed over the edge boom, now it's an algal bloom lake Mm. and everything's dying. The fish species that were in there are suffocated and they might not be able to recover if every single one of them in there dies. So that's sort of that alternative stable states. You know, the resilience of the system, as we define it, is how much can that ball, that ecosystem take? How how much of that pushing before it moves into the new cup? Interesting. Yeah. Um, So that's really a lot of what he talks about in the first... Well over half of this paper is just sort of these examples of predator, prey, you know, lakes being pushed past their point, all that sort of thing. And then finally on page 14, he gives his formal definition of resilience. That it's a measure of the persistence of systems and their ability to absorb change and disturbance and still maintain the same relationships between populations or state variables. It's that same thing. How much can you push the ball until it goes into the other cup? And when it goes into the other cup, it's relationships between different species, between the way humans interact with it, fundamentally change. Sure. And that's resilience. Those connections are fundamentally different than they were before. Or just different species, too. And thus, ecological resilience was, was born. Yeah, seriously. On page 14 of <laughs> The Resilience and Stability of Ecological Systems. So another thing that he makes a really interesting point about is he says that instability can lead to resilience. And at first glance, that seems a little unintuitive, right? Mm. But he defines instability the way that we were talking about that rabbit and bunny example. 
the if you just look to the bunny numbers, they look crazily unstable. Right. One year there's, I don't know, thousands of them. The next year there's 20. You know, and if you just see that going on year after year after year, until you see the clear pattern of that cycle, it seems wildly unstable. Mm. But it's that instability, that cyclical nature that is, you know, allows those relationships with the fox to become so closely knit and to sort of have that boom and bust cycle. And that allows for resilience in the system. Mm. That means that, okay. you know, if something terrible were to happen and a bunch of the bunnies in the, you know, the, the year of many bunnies <laughs> got <laughs> killed for some reason, it would probably be able to persist because there's a, you know, history and a legacy of small bunny populations in that system. Some of the foxes would die, you know, there'd be some disturbance, some rearrangement, you know, the plants the bunnies would eat, were eating would go back as many of the bunnies died, that sort of thing. But there's a history of these different numbers of different animals in the system. It's resilient. <laughs> so I'm going to beat that bunny example into the ground, I think. <laughs> it's a good one, though. Well, I just like your example of the year of the many bunnies. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That should be our naming conventions from now on. Oh, absolutely. And there's the year of the many foxes, the year of the, yes. you know. So the point that he makes to go back to that beginning where he's like, numbers don't matter that much. What matters is looking at the cycles and the sort of the qualitative nature. He says a very different view of the world may be obtained if we concentrate on the boundaries of the domain of attraction. That is the lip of the cup. When we were talking about that ball being pushed over, that's called a domain of attraction. So, mm. you know, if you see where are the lips of the cups rather than on equilibrium states, he says. So it's more important that we know from historical example, if we get 10,000 bunnies, we're going to tip into a different regime because now the bunnies have overtaken. They've eaten every plant in the entire place. It's a desert. That's a boundary. Okay. That's much more important than counting year to year. Oh, this year there was 500 bunnies. And this year there was 200. And this year there was 300. And this year there was, you know, 10. And this year there was 1,000. If all of those were within that normal cyclical range, who cares? Mm. The important part is monitoring for the extremes. Maybe if you get to zero bunnies, yeah, the fox population considering. also crashes. You're into a new system where you don't have that going on. Sure. Like I said, 10,000 bunnies and you're into a desert. Those are the boundaries of the cup that push it into a new cup. Okay. So that's sort of his end point. That makes sense. Yeah. doesn't matter how much the ball rolls around the cup, as long as it doesn't spill out into a right. new cup. Right. Unless you want it to spill out into a new cup, <laughs> which is, you know, when humans start controlling right. what state something's in. And so one other important point that he makes. So throughout this paper, you know, he starts really simple really small scale and it gets a little bit bigger a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger just like resilience has scale so right. important 100%. his point is that one final point is that heterogeneity is so important and by that i mean it is really important to have ecosystems let's go back to the fox and the bunny it's important to have one patch of the ecosystem where you're at the high bunny numbers you know and the the low fox numbers at the same time as you have another patch really nearby where you're at the large fox numbers and the really small bunny numbers that's important because then say a fire, you know, rips through the one that doesn't have a lot of foxes and kills every single fox. Mm. Now you've got all bunnies. Like we said, you know, maybe they'll eat every single plant and it'll become a desert. Right. And, you know, maybe that's not great for the way this ecosystem functions and the ecosystem services that it provides. But if you've got another patch right nearby without, that's in the whole bunch of foxes stage, <laughs> the year of the fox, if you will, some of those foxes are going to look and go, oh man, there's a lot of uneaten bunnies over there. They're going to go and sort of restart that cycle. So it's there's resilience inherent in heterogeneity of, an, of a landscape, per se. Sure. Yeah. 
So in this instance, you're visualizing this patch of land as not so much like an island in the middle no. of the ocean, but yeah. instead a patch yeah. of land within a larger patch of landscape. Land. Yeah. And so he's saying that these cycles, these boom and bust bunny and fox cycles are happening at different, you know, at different points of the cycle simultaneously all across a landscape. And so that sort of provides resilience for the, one of the patches that gets it's got a lot of hunters or it's got a fire, or it's got a tornado or, you know, whatever. Mm. And so there's resilience in that heterogeneity. And yeah. so his final statement is that a management approach based on resilience would emphasize the need to keep options open, the need to view events in a regional in a region rather than a local context and the need to emphasize heterogeneity. So he's saying, take a step back, look at the scale where you can see all the bunnies and all the foxes, you know, make sure you've got different patchworks of where the bunny and uh, fox cycles are and that that's going to promote your resilience and to sort of don't get hung up on, oh God, there were 20 bunnies here last spring and now there's 30. Maybe sure. we should always have 20 bunnies in this landscape. Don't worry about small changes. Keep your options open and just try to maximize your resilience through heterogeneity and a large scale view. Nice. And that's hauling. That's a distilled down hauling. There's <laughs> a lot of graphs in there that I don't think are crucial for a first time reading. But, but so I guess where we're going to go now is hauling's big point was qualitative, qualitative over quantitative. Look at the big picture. You know, look at the big scale. Uh, don't worry about the numbers. Connor's paper, though, a more modern resilience paper, I think worries about the numbers a lot more. Am I right? Um, yes, yes. Uh, to some extent, it's definitely more interested in quantifi quantification. Per the title. Per the title <laughs> of resilience. So the paper that I'm going to discuss is uh, an editorial, Quantifying Resilience, mm -hmm. uh, by David Angler and Craig Allen, mm -hmm. both of whom, full disclosure, yes. have some presence here. Yes, well, we, we work with sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Craig Allen uh, is here at the University of Nebraska. Yes, he is. David Engler is out in uh, Sweden. He is, but I believe he has an appointment here he as does. well. So he does. Very closely working with our cohort here. Yes. So he's, uh, well, both of them, I should say, published this uh, paper in the Journal of Applied Ecology mm -hmm. back in 2016. And they start off by defining ecological resilience and they talk about hauling and where this paper c comes from and where this concept of ecological resilience comes from. And then it asks the question whether resilience can be quantified. And when, when I say something like that, you know, mm -hmm. can resilience be quantified? What we mean is can, can resilience be um, thought of as a kind of property that okay. we can measure in some way. Gotcha. So think of it as more akin to boiling, boiling point or sure. the force of gravity, sure. um, something to that effect. Or is resilience just something that is useful in the context of a framework? So a, is a mental this, model, maybe. Yeah, a mental a way to model. Think about systems. Look at it as a, a lens, a mm -hmm. perspective for how we can view the world and manage things are cyclical we can't control them there's going to be variability and heterogeneity is important boom maybe that's all well right. resilience is or, yeah maybe a, a guidepost mm -hmm. for how we can better manage our natural resources right. and the authors of this paper believe that resilience is in fact a kind of property that we can measure 
Um, so I'd just like to start off by saying that this is a great paper mm -hmm. for those who are just getting into ecological resilience. Yes, this is the one to read first, maybe. They do, their definitions are easy to understand and on point. It is very useful because they break down different definitions and talk about them that, mm -hmm. all, that all fall under the umbrella category of ecological resilience. Many of whom, many of which we will have full episodes on later on in the season. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about that in a little bit here. Yeah. Um, but uh, just some examples, uh, excuse me, to whet your appetite, we could, uh, the paper defines uh, feedbacks, what's a, reg a regime shift, talks a little bit about scale, yep. which is, of course, as we were just discussing, yeah. absolutely crucial for scale ecological Scale and heterogeneity. Resilience. If you learn nothing else from this podcast, learn about scale, scale and heterogeneity. And heterogeneity. Uh, they talk a little bit about alternative states and discontinuities, uh, all of this. That fancy words. All, the, all these fancy words and really abstract concepts yes, absolutely. that uh, underpin the concept of ecological resilience. So just to briefly talk about what some of those concepts are that I threw out there, um, we have resiliency, which is really another word for engineering resilience. Mm, okay. So going back to that bounce back, you know, the cap, the capacity of a system to return to its baseline state yep. after a disturbance. Adaptive capacity, which is not to be confused with adaptation, which adaptation, if you think back to Ecology 101, right. uh, that's a, a trait in a species that um, has evolved in response to some kind of a stress, right? Yeah. Uh, adaptive capacity is the ability of a system to change its behavior or, or physical properties, what, what have you, to some kind of unknown future stress. So... While adaptation is that physical trait or that physical behavior. Maybe of an that, individual species or something like yeah. that. In, in terms of an, ev an evolutionary yeah, time frame. Yeah, and usually it's in the context of some species, but it could also be in the context of a system. So while adaptation is a physical trait or a behavior, you know, that concrete thing that a species or a system has done to okay. change in response to some, some disturbance. Mm. Um, adaptive capacity is that species, that's, that system's ability to adapt to some kind of unknown event in the future. Like a potential. Yeah. It hasn't adapted yet. It hasn't but adapted it, but yet. But it can do it if it And it doesn't to. know what that event might be. So it's kind of like resilience. It's, it's your ability to take disturbance and run with it. Take disturbance and run with it, or, or at least be able to mitigate the damage, gotcha. right? Yeah. Uh, alternative states... We've talked about that quite a bit. Alternative stable states are these potential alternatives to how the system is configured. So it goes back to your ball and cup model, Julie, yeah. talking about all of that. Um, and of course, we're going to be talking about that in a future episode. So we're going to have a future episode all about alternative, alternative stable, stable states. states. Great. Big old topic. That's a big one. Yeah. And we'll talk about that in the context, not just of you know ecology and yes. these different ecological stable states um obviously since that's a lot of the stuff that we work around that's kind of our the first thing that pops in our head but um what's really cool about all these concepts is they're not just confined to ecology no absolutely not and really ecological resilience itself even though it's called ecological resilience isn't confined to ecology yeah 
and a lot of these are broadly applicable across a whole bunch of disciplines. They probably fall under like systems thinking. Anything oh, that's a quite system. A bit. Societies, you know, civilizations, ecosystems, of course, governments. Yeah. Anything like that. Economics, even. Economics, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, just a nice little primer on mm-hmm. a whole bunch of these different examples that are listed out. Um, and there's a whole bunch of them that we aren't going to cover that are listed in the paper. So I encourage you to go to that paper if you want to learn more about them. Um, stuff that we also might cover in future episodes, too. You know, Just to throw a bunch of them out of there. It could be like feedbacks, hysteresis. That'll mm-hmm. be a big one. Adaptive management. And these things sound much more complicated yes they're all simple scary, they just have their own names terrifying to sort of like find their jargony. place in the field yes they have jargon. <laughs> that's and that's the point of this podcast is we don't want it we don't want this whole field to be full of jargon that no one's ever heard before they pick up one paper they're like forget this this right. is yeah yeah it's useful for ecologists but it's not really useful for anybody else because you don't have that background yeah absolutely so the paper also discusses approaches to how they might quantify resilience. Yeah, sort of going against Hollings, you know, tirade on qualitative over quantitative. (laughs) How might you take resilience and measure it as a property? And we can do that either looking at it spatially, so looking at resilience in physical space, or through what are called discontinuities. Okay. So a discontinuity is, it's a sort of a gap in what would otherwise be a continuous curve, hence the name. (laughs) (laughs) Describe a continuous curve. Continuous curve. So think of it, um, so we have taken a bunch of samples of something, right? Mm -hmm. And usually we see them as little dots on a a graph. On a graph. Your x and your y axis and then a bunch of little dots in between. And if you uh, take those dots and you plot out a line, you can find what's uh, a curve of kind of like kind. the average of all the, the dots over yes. that x mm-hmm. it can be a cur- uh an average of all the dots uh obviously you know there's as many ways to measure those as there are stars in the sky yeah we won't get but, into the stats <laughs> yeah but um in addition if you even if you measure enough data points theoretically you could wind up with what looks to be a continuous curve right um so this this curve um, will have gaps in it. And that's where the discontinuity comes in. So if you, let's just use species, we'll go back to that as an example. If you put a range of species on a graph by body mass, body size, then the authors assert, you can see there's a wide range of body sizes. Um, But since different species tend to be certain different kinds of sizes, Um, whether that's a, oh goodness, something even as small as a a fly or looking at a praying mantis Mm -hmm. or something as big as a bison. It it really runs the gamut of any species. Um, We can see that there are certain ideal sizes these species tend to congregate. Size classes, maybe. Yeah. And that's where these discontinuity gaps fit in because... Um, we see gaps where those species don't fit, don't... They just don't exist on that size. Don't exist in that size. Yeah, I think one place where this is really frequently cited in the literature that I read about is with fish sizes, fish body sizes. 
There's like mm-hmm. distinct classes. Fish are usually, I'm just going to make up some size classes. Very small, small, medium, large, very large. Great. We'll pretend that's Excellent real. Excellent classes. Yes. Really. But zero, let's say very small. I'm not even going to use, you know, like a, like centimeters, inches, nothing here. Let's say very small fish are one to three, whatever, you know, inches, centimeters, whatever. One and small ones. Yes. And small ones are five to seven, but no fish really exists between three and five. You know, you got one to three extra small five to seven small nothing in between that's a discontinuity they fall somehow they organize into being these size classes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not they more like the evolutionary there <laughs> right yeah so taking all of that into account the authors and the literature in general theorize that these discontinuity gaps can be used to look at patterns and figure out what scales uh, a particular species operates at in an ecosystem. Oh, okay. So you have your little ant and the specific size or the ideal size of an ant, and there will be discontinuity gaps. And so as a result of those gaps, you can measure uh, where that little ant species is going to fit in in the general scale of an ecosystem. Like ant versus, let's say... Pretend beetles are always larger. Beetles. There's a gap in size between an ant and a beetle, mm-hmm. and that's going to determine at what scale they operate in the system. Maybe ants only. Gonna any ant biologist can be mad at me. Let's say an ant, <laughs> ant only exists in a one square inch by one square inch little little box, and it affects that box. Right. Maybe a beetle operates in a one you know one foot by one foot box, and it affects that box. Is that sort of idea? Uh, yeah, to some extent. Okay. Uh, the issue is complicated when you uh, scale up beyond the individual, right? Right. You know, oh, of course. You know, there's Colonies a lot more ants. <laughs> ants than there are beetles yes. in a in an ant colony versus, you know, beetles in a square meter or something, sure. right? So, you know, there's, there's that issue as well. And there's questions of, you know, individuals versus collectives and yeah. questions of, of scale. And that's kind of incorporated somewhat into, you know, um, different different methods for measurement, obviously. But. So how do they use this discontinuity analysis to determine resilience? Like, what does this size class thing have to do with that? Right. So the idea is to measure resilience as a property by measuring where different species fit into an ecosystem okay. and then... Where are the potential vulnerabilities or the uh, potential gaps I see. Um, that are that shouldn't be there but sure. are there? Um, so, of course, resilience or ecological resilience, I should say, looks at how long or how well an ecosystem is capable of absorbing disturbance without changing to an alternative state. Right? Yeah. So, looking at the different species that fit into an ecosystem. If you start to notice gaps where there shouldn't be because that ecological niche is not being met, uh, that can put up a red flag to tell you that uh, the resilience of this particular ecosystem has been undermined. Sure. And if you know an invasive species or some kind of you know other disturbance moves right. into the system and just breaks apart those yeah. uh, food web or, mm-hmm. or other connections between the species, mm-hmm. Um, the resilience can be so undermined that it flips to an alternative state. Yeah, so maybe like back to the fox and the bunnies, 
maybe if you're used to having, you know, foxes and bunnies and their certain cyclical patterns and numbers, but then all of a sudden some disturbance happens and all the bunnies die and an invasive species comes along, another, you know, small, fuzzy, appropriately sized, <laughs> roughly bunny sized animal comes in, you know, takes over, but then foxes hate to eat this new species. That's going to throw off everything. It's going to change, fundamentally change. So you can see, you know, maybe if the bunny population is really starting to plummet, might be some vulnerabilities there. You might not know what's going to happen, what's going to come in. Sure. So that sort of idea. Yeah. The bunnies all die, but the mutant shrews come exactly, in. Exactly. Take and the over. foxes are like, no, 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 no. I'm not a fan. They taste nasty. Yeah. Yeah. So another thing might be functional redundancy. That's another fancy jargon term in the resilience sphere. But sure. maybe if you had many bunny-esque species with that approximate size and foxes love to eat all of these bunny-esque species, then if all the bunnies die, you've got the other bunny-esque species there doesn't leave a hole open for an invasive mutant shrew to come in. Right. Got a little bit of yeah. redundancy in resilient that promotes resilience in the system. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Or even you might have the mutant shrews come in, but if the foxes are still eating the flying squirrels or whatever. Sure, whatever the other fuzzy uh, <laughs> functional redundant species is. Uh, then they might be okay. Mm-hmm. And so the system will uh, continue to maintain itself even right. With the mutant mutant shrews coming in. Coming in and trying, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The paper also discusses different examples. So beyond uh, just, you know, species interactions and body mass sizes, uh, it does cite to a paper by Jean Garmastani looking at city sizes. Oh, great. So we will see cities also break down on this continuous curve where you see gaps. So, you know, Hmm. you have... Uh, small cities yeah. that'll be of a, a certain range, certain distribution, like population, of population size, okay. size, and then there will be a gap, okay. and then there will be a range of mid-sized mid-sized cities of right. a certain size, right. gap, right. A range of bigger cities, yep. and so again, you can kind of assess using that uh, using that distribution what the resilience of different sizes of cities is. Interesting. Uh, This can also be applied to businesses, economics. So uh, it's applicable to a whole wide variety of fields. Yeah, we might not be explaining this analysis perfectly, but there's a lot in the literature about it. And it's sort of the up and coming, maybe. Yeah, there's a lot of interest in the discontinuities and how they can be applied to measure resilience. Gotcha. Um, That being said, of course, there's a lot of challenges and knowledge gaps. And that's something that the authors do address, you know. There's a lot of interest for multiple fields, like I just mentioned, but, um, you know, even using the term resilience in general is really fragmented, right? We've been seeing that quite a lot. We just mentioned, you know, mental health versus athleticism versus communities versus ecological resilience. And so when people mean different things, when they talk about resilience, there's obviously going to be some miscommunication. Oh, definitely. And so... Um, one area that the authors talk about where the term hasn't been used very much, but if we want to use resilience in things like natural resources management, land management, um, even using it in terms of you know businesses and, and disaster preparation, uh, law and policy is an area where we kind of need to define what we mean when we say resilience sure. and uh, that's how we move forward in implementing it and using it, whether as a property to be measured or using it 
as a framework to think about um, how to adapt to, to different changing things, whether that's uh, disasters or uh, invasive species, mm -hmm. um, a whole wide range of these different things. Well, that's really what you study, right? Like that's your sort of dissertation uh, area? Yeah, that's true. Looking a lot at, you know, I'm looking at it more from resilience as a framework perspective, okay. but uh, looking at how we can integrate resilience in general, as well as these different ecological concepts, yeah. um, how we can integrate them into our legal framework. Sure. So there are very good reasons for why we've set up some of our, our legal systems the way they are, obviously. Um, and so the challenge of integrating resilience and other umbrella uh, concepts under that umbrella, the challenge is to find a way to maintain those legal institutions for the for the purposes they were set up so like justice and fairness yeah. and making sure that the law is applied consistently applied without any sort of arbitrariness to it we want to keep all of that in place but we also want to bring in these these concepts that allow for some adaptation sure. flexibility yeah that's kind of what holly was saying with the you know, an ideal management approach based on resilience would emphasize the need to keep options open. Absolutely. But that doesn't really work necessarily when you have laws that have to be written and not changed on the whim of every laws individual. Laws that have to be written and, yeah, have to stick, have to be flexible enough to stick around for a while in the mm -hmm. face of changing circumstances. Yeah. But on the other hand, uh, provide a degree of certainty for people so that they know what the law is, right? And it's not changing so fast that nobody really, you know, knows if they're doing anything illegal or not. Sure. And the same goes for agencies and people in charge of managing our public natural resources, okay. right? Uh, because, you know, there's, there's an incentive for them to, once they find something that works, uh, to stick with it because you don't want... Uh, angry industry groups or angry citizen groups or angry anybody else, some kind of stakeholder to come in and sue them over it, right? Which yeah. happens quite frequently. Absolutely. So there's there's a challenge of trying to find that Goldilocks zone where we can get things get things right. So uh, we're going to move on now to our last segment Very of the podcast. Fun segment, yeah. Resilience in the news. So. For our first episode, we'll kind of explain what this is. Each of us uh, comes to the podcast having selected a news piece that either explicitly or perhaps not explicitly, yeah. but implied, mentions resilience. And we believe uses the concepts. Uh, now, it could be using the concept of resilience in a good way or a bad way. Incorrect, you know. correct. You yeah. know, just something for us to chat about. Exactly. And to hopefully help you guys, the listeners who are learning about ecological resilience, to see it in your day-to-day -day lives. Just see how ubiquitous it is, because it's, as we're talking about, a framework, a way to, you know, have some flexibility in your management and, and mm -hmm. seeing how things are systems and cyclical and yeah, interrelated yeah. and this sort of stuff. So you can see it in just about any piece of news if you're looking. Right. Yeah. So, Julie? Yep. Should I get started? Yeah. So the piece that I chose was a piece from the New York Times called Why These Australia Fires Are Like Nothing We've Seen Before. Oh. So maybe if you're listening to this, it's going to depend when we get this posted, but you've probably heard about the 
big Australia wildfires that are going on this year. So yeah. start in 2019, now into 2020. Mm-hmm. Bit of a bit of a focus of the global news cycle right yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So basically, you know, a little background. Late October, there's a lightning strike. Starts to go for mountain fire. At this point, it's been going for three plus months. You know, who knows when you guys are listening to this, it, when it stopped or even if it has. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the largest mega blaze that Australia has seen, if not at a much larger global comparison. Um, 20 million acres were burned in just that one Gopher Mountain fire, but that's not the only fire going on. Um, sure. They've even had sort of to take some crazy precautions. This is kind of just a neat tidbit. There are these prehistoric trees uh, somewhere in Australia that are of such great va- you know, historical value and science mm-hmm. value, this sort of thing, that their location is not released to the public. Wow. And they have been sending people to to sort of try to guard and protect these trees in the wildfire. So I can't crazy. even tell you where they are. I don't know. Huh. But, you know, this whole multi-layer pr- protection of people, animals... Um, but basically an area the size of West Virginia has been, t- has been burned in just two territories. That's not even the full extent of the fire. Wow. So big, big time. That is a lot. And so what's really different about this fire, you know, so we've seen fires before. We were talking about the campfire earlier in this, you know, out in California earlier in this episode. Mm-hmm. Wildfires are, you know, if you, a lot of ecologists might know this, but it's not necessarily public knowledge where fires are important for lots of ecosystems. Like I'm from Georgia. Sure. And long, I believe it's longleaf pines for the uh, seeds to germinate for the next cycle of trees growing. Uh, they have to go through fire because it melts the wax coating on the outside of their cones. Oh. And that allows the seeds to exit the cones, go into the soil, grow up. So there's sure. a lot of ecosystems that evolved with fire. The Great Plains used to have essentially controlled burns done by Native American people here. And that sort of kept them in that, you know, grassland, grassland state. state. We talk about cycles, that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. and that was over thousands and thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, just the way that many ecosystems evolved. Fires are not inherently bad. But this one is big and different and threatening a lot of spaces that have not been threatened so direly by wildfires before. Sure. And so what's different about these, this article contends, is that these fires are near large population areas. There have been fires on this scale or near this scale before in the world, but they have occurred in remote areas, not near population centers, mostly in northern Canada and in Siberia. Mm. Kind of like taiga forests, this yeah. sort of thing. And this is so close to major cities, ripping right through cities, things like that. And so the question this article contends is why? Mm-hmm. Why here? Why is this different? Why is this worse? Australia has wildfires. No big deal. But this one's worse, they contend, because of climate change, which in the language of resilience, they don't mention resilience, but in our language, it's disturbance. Sure. This is a alteration of climate patterns that are affecting uh, Australia in particular through longer and more frequent extreme heat events, and that this allows the fire season to not only be worse, but to start earlier, go longer. Um, and so what else is interesting is that this... Uh, fires and wildfires in Australia usually happen during an El Nino, like Southern Oscillation Cycle, you know, that whole current system, blah, blah, blah. This is not an El Nino year. And so this is out of the ordinary, not only in size and scope, but when it's occurring. Mm. Because it's not during that El Nino time. So the amount of disturbance that 
you know, has come from climate change has led to these. It's I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily state that Australia has flipped into some alternative stable state. You know, it's fundamentally different. Nothing like that. Right. But this bit of a disturbance that has occurred is pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing on the resilience of the sort of wildfire system in Australia. And mm-hmm. that is bringing it closer to population centers. The one final thing I'll say about this is that um, with so much, you know, plant matter and this sort of thing being burned, that's a lot of carbon emissions from sure. these wildfires. And as we all know, you know, CO2 in the atmosphere, that sort of greenhouse gas effect leads to more climate change. Right. And so something we'll talk about probably in a future episode, but the role of feedbacks and resilience. So the resilience of this system has been pressed so much that now the wildfires are increasing in size and scope and where they are and getting worse and worse and worse. And that's directly contributing back to climate change getting worse because you have this greenhouse gas emission. And so that's going to push the resilience of the system even farther and might, you know, who knows what that next cup that it might tip into that next alternative stable state. Sure. So that's my little bit. So it doesn't mention resilience, but pretty clear to see how disturbance is influencing and how Australia might not be able to cope with that disturbance. Wow. Well, uh, for my part, I'm my news article comes a little closer to home in Nebraska. Sure. Uh, talking about the uh, historic floods we had here in Nebraska in 2019. Sure. So that, uh, for those who aren't familiar, uh, Nebraska had some very historic flooding yes, we occur did. <laughs> last year, where, oh, around March and April in particular, and really starting a bit in February, if I recall, but March especially, yeah. uh, there was some gigantic flooding across the state. Um affecting most of the regions of the state and all of the major rivers. And um, almost everybody was impacted in some way by that. I even recall looking at the Nebraska 511 website and the road closure signal symbols were just across the state. I read some number that was like 75% of all roads in Nebraska were closed at some point in time. Um, it was something just absolutely bonkers. I, yeah, at least, you know, I believe that that number were impacted. From what I remember, about 20, 20% were like straight up closed, like, like for, no access at all. Lord, yeah. And a lot of bridges were out. Yes. We actually lost a couple of like historical bridges yeah. that had been around for 100 years sure. that were swept away in the flood. And uh, there was a big dam breach over yeah. at Spencer Dam. Somebody actually died from that Oof. from that one. Uh, yeah, so that was a, a big issue here in Nebraska. And one uh, entity that was really impacted was Offutt Air Force Base. Oh, okay. So Offutt Air Force Base is a Air Force facility uh, next to Omaha and Bellevue. Okay. Um, and as a result, it's very, very near the Missouri River. Um, there's a lot of, you know, uh, smaller streams and stuff that feed into that, of course. But Office Air Force Base, I'm sorry, Offutt Air <laughs> Force Base experienced a lot of flooding as a result of that 2019 flood, and um, some of their buildings were lost. There's sure. all, there were a lot of interesting articles at the time about, uh, for example, um, the historian's office getting flooded, and so. People were like right up until the floodwaters were rising. We're trying to shovel out as many of historical documents, documents and yeah. 
like a lot of the stuff talking about the history of uh, yeah. the 55th wing and, and the history of the base and everything, trying to get all that yeah, you know, I mean, irreplaceable you, stuff out. You could argue there's something to be said for resilience in that exact situation as well, where, you know, we learn from our, from our history and our historical documents. If you lose that, you lose some of your, you know, humans ability, adaptive, you know, ability to adapt and some of our own resilience, yeah. the loss of knowledge. Absolutely. Loss of experience. Yes, exactly. And uh, funny you should mention that, Julie, because mm-hmm. as they have spent a lot of money to rebuild the base, um, they have kind of taken that lesson to heart. And so some of the new buildings they've built and the flood-prone flood areas sure. uh, have been designed in the, the floor layouts created in mind of future floods. Good. So the the first floors on those buildings, for example, have been designed so um, if another if and when yeah, another big when, flood yeah. does occur, uh, there's nothing of either military strategic value or historical value or anything on those fl- floors, so they can be flooded gotcha. and the uh, facility can still function as as yeah. needed. So I mean that's a fantastic example of them realizing that they have to be resilient in the future for these unpredictable events, especially if and when they become more common through climate change. Right. So design, yeah, designing buildings and and thinking about how you're laying out your offices and everything in those buildings so that if a big disturbance does come along, you don't completely lose those buildings again. Yeah. And also understanding that you're going to have a disturbance will occur. They know they're going to get flooded again, so they've mm-hmm. you know taken that measure. And B, if you know if it does take a little bit of losses, because they're definitely going to have to clean out those spaces again. You oh, know, yeah, they sure. might lose this or that desk or you know Still relatively unimportant to... things, but they can now take that disturbance and quickly recover from it and yeah. keep their same function going. Yeah. It's pretty impressive. So that's a positive one. I felt. Oh, of, absolutely. Uh, applying the lessons learned in building a more resilient facility right yeah. so um, that was that was an optimistic one that yeah i, I like share. it and a little bit interesting in terms of scale too because i'm sure that the so this is air force right yep so the air force is obviously a national thing but with these local air force bases mm-hmm. if they lose uh, you know most of the capacity to function at one of their local bases that affects the resilience of the whole U.S. Air Force and the U.S. whole U.S. military. Right. So they have a vested financial and defense interest in building a more resilient, uh, what would you call it, like infrastructure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. I like that example. Great. Well, this just about ends our podcast, I Julie. Think so. One thing we wanted to mention is for anybody who's interested in reading further, we will post... Uh, the citations to the sources we've mentioned, those papers Absolutely. and everything. And the news articles, make sure we give credit. I, yeah, let me mention the author of the... So the article that I read from the New York Times that why these Australia fires are like nothing we've seen before was written by Jamie Tarabe, mm-hmm. just to give full credit. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll post those on our website so you mm-hmm. can uh, go and check them out. And then next week on the podcast, we are going to move on to... Two alternative stable states. Yes. Very exciting. And something regime shifts. And regime shifts. Something yeah. we've talked about a little bit briefly here on the podcast. Hopefully but. got a little bit of a primer here. Hopefully it wasn't wildly confusing, but yeah. tune in. 
and keep an eye out for a couple of interviews that we're going to have yes. on the podcast Very excited about soon. those. Very excited. We got some amazing people. Yes, we do. to talk. So. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. All right. Take care. This has been WHRA. What the heck is resilience anyway? Bye.